turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 and considering the source of holiness. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, the source of holiness. Give attention to God's holy word. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your ordinances and for the promises that you have made and attached to your ordinances, and that it is through preaching that you enter into our presence and that you speak to us from heaven. We pray, Lord, now that you would speak to us through the preaching of the word anointing us with your spirit that we may hear the voice of the Son of God and that as we hear his voice we might live. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. How holy is holy enough? Is there a point at which in our lives that your holiness reaches its ultimate end? Is this even a proper question to ask? How much holiness do we need? Holiness, like much sadly in the gospel, is misunderstood. It is either scoffed at as legalism and being judgmental. If you emphasize holiness, people will say, that's just legalism and being judgmental. Or, legalism and being judgmental are embraced as if that was the sum and substance of what it means to be holy. As if knowing that we should be holy and pointing out others' unholiness were the sum and substance of what God requires in the gospel. Even here, to say that God requires holiness in the gospel 
exposes the false gospel that has taken over the church in our day. This false gospel is one that proclaims a God who is not holy, proclaims a Christ who grants us a salvation that is centered on feeling good rather than being holy, and a Holy Ghost who baptizes our carnal impulses without transforming them to be holy. This false gospel is a gospel devoid, empty of holiness. And being empty of holiness, being empty of this benefit of Christ, this false gospel is empty of Christ. You will either have Christ whole and entire, or you will not have Christ at all. And the Christ that we preach, as Peter proclaimed in Acts 2.27, is the Lord's Holy One. But why holiness? Why do we need this benefit of Christ's salvation? Why require something of us that our hearts are incapable of and our flesh is totally opposed to? Why holiness? Because the reward promised in the gospel, the great treasure that God holds out to you in the gospel of His Son is heavenly. Beloved, what awaits for us who look for the glorious appearing of Christ is beyond comprehension. It is beyond the deepest longings of your heart. It is heaven itself. And being heavenly, the reward requires holiness. What we're going to see in this passage is that the heavenly blessings foreshadowed in the law require a heavenly holiness. The heavenly blessings foreshadowed in the law require a heavenly holiness. As we look at this passage, we're going to notice two things. Heavenly blessings in verses 1 through 4, and heavenly holiness in verses 5 through 10. Heavenly blessings in verses 1 through 4, and heavenly holiness in verses 5 through 10. As we begin looking at this passage, notice the language that the author uses in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. The word having a shadow of, it's, we use this in literature, it's foreshadowing. It's, it's a dim hint at something that's to come later on. You might think of, if you've ever played with your kids, doing shadow puppets. You put your hands in a certain way and you can make the face of a gorilla. And the light from behind your hand shines the, the outline or the faint resemblance of a gorilla on the wall. 
or you can do a bunny or a dog or whatever your kids like. That's what's being talked about here in the law. The law foreshadowed the good things to come. Now I want you to note that this reference in verse 1 of chapter 10 refers back to much in the book of Hebrews already. I'm going to move quickly through some of these references because I want you to get the impression and the impact of what the author is telling us here. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Christ, after he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 4, verse 16, we are exhorted to come unto the throne of grace, the mercy seat, which was the uh, lid of the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle. In chapter 6, verse 19, we're told that the hope of the gospel goes beyond the veil into the presence. Chapter 7, verse 19, we are told that by this better hope of Christ, we draw near to God. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the author summarizes his whole letter and says, this is the point. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in the true tabernacle that God pitched and not man. Chapter 9, verse 11, the author describes Christ's priesthood. And he says, Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. And then in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9, the author writes and says that Christ has entered not the earthly tabernacle, but heaven itself. First Peter chapter 1 verse 9, the apostle writes about this and he says that these good things to come, he terms them salvation. Chapter 1 verse 9 of First Peter. Psalm 73, 24 gives a very poetic description of these good things. Psalm 73, the author is writing and then in verse 4 he says, it doesn't matter what happens in the world around me, you will receive me to glory. Brothers and sisters, God has promised you His own glory as your reward. God has promised you His own eternal chabod. In the Old Testament, the word chabod is the word for glory. It was the cloud of Chabod that descended upon Mount Sinai. It was the Chabod that filled the tabernacle and the temple, such that the priests fell backwards and could not enter the temple. That is your reward. He has promised Himself as your blessedness. He has promised His own being as your reward and your happiness in the covenant of grace. If you look at Westminster Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 1, the authors of that confession say this, that we could have no hope of enjoying God, even though we owe Him our obedience, unless God had voluntarily condescended to make a promise. And that promise is contained in His covenant. These are the good things to come. These are the heavenly blessings awaiting you who endure to the end. And so endure. 
Saints, beloved of God the Father, endure to the end. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also shall appear with Him in glory. These are the good things to come. The nature of these good things, however, being heavenly blessings, the very glory of the living God Himself, requires us to be holy. It requires us to be holy. It requires, in fact, a holiness to match. If you want to buy a suit and your money doesn't match, the price of the suit, you don't get the suit. Christ in the gospel promises to you the suit of heaven. Therefore, you must have a holiness that matches the price of that suit. We continue through verse 1 and 2. He says that the law had only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things. And so the law could never with the sacrifices that are offered year by year, make those who approach perfect. This is a reference to the high priest. The high priest under the law was the one who approached the presence of God. And all these sacrifices that were offered could never make him perfect. If the priest is not perfect, the people can never be perfect. Because the priest represents the people. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He has been perfected. And through faith in him, you are perfected to inherit heaven. He also says in uh, verse 3, verse 2 he goes on to say, if they made men perfect, they would cease to be offered. There's no need to keep sacrificing if perfection is attained. But then he says in verse 3, the point of these sacrifices is that they were a reminder of sins every year. The reason the sacrifices were continually offered is that they were to remind the people of their sins and of their need of cleansing. This gives us a very important insight in how to read the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even Exodus, and all the Old Testament sacrificial codes. I know often we approach those books of the Bible and it can be difficult to plow. It can be a hard go to endure through the book of Leviticus. And I think sometimes it's because we don't understand the purpose of the book of Leviticus. I think it's good for us to think about the ceremonial law as a catechism. It is a catechism of holiness. You know what a catechism is. A catechism is written to those who have not yet attained knowledge. It's a very simple question and answer format. Westminster uh, Confession, chapter 19, paragraph 3, says that the ceremonial law was written to a church under age, containing uh, 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 figures of Christ and certain moral duties. So they say the ceremonial law was written to those who are immature to teach them about Christ and about how they are to live. 
to teach them about how to glorify God and how to enjoy Him forever. And so I think as we look at the book of Leviticus based on verse 3, we look at it as a catechism. Now just think with me for a little bit about all the sacrifices Leviticus contained. You had to offer a sacrifice for ordinary worship. If you wanted to praise the Lord because He had blessed your crop, you had to offer blood. If you wanted to atone for your sins, you had to offer blood. If you wanted to enjoy the peace offering, you had to offer blood. If you brought a burnt offering, you had to offer blood. If you offered a trespass offering, you had to offer blood. When Aaron was consecrated, they had to offer blood. During childbirth, before and after, you had to offer blood sacrifices. For any bodily discharge, you had to offer a blood sacrifice. If there was leprosy in your body or in your home, you had to offer a blood sacrifice. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament is dripping with the blood of bulls and goats. Now, what is the point of this lesson? Is the point of this lesson that God is angry and that God wants, uh, that, that God is judging mankind? No. That's not the point of the Levitical system. The grand lesson of the Levitical code was that man is totally unclean. That man in every aspect of his life is unholy. In birth and in death, at night and during the day, whatever we do, it required the blood of a sacrifice. We are totally an unclean thing. As Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6, he says that our righteousness is but filthy rags, and we are altogether an unclean thing. Our Lord teaches this same principle in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, correcting the Jews who misunderstood the holiness code. Matthew chapter 15, verse 10, Christ is teaching the crowd, and he tells the multitude, he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. By the way, defile is a technical term from the Old Testament for unclean, unholy. Then his disciples came and said, Did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind. Both will fall into a ditch. And Peter answered him and said, Explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach as, and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Down, therefore. Down to the depths of hell, all proud ideas that we can be holy in ourselves. Down with the pride that says, at least we are not like them. 
down with all self-satisfied, self-righteous, self-exalting notions that we are in any way holy. Of ourselves, we are unholy. And being unholy, we are unworthy of the heavenly blessings. Those good things to come which God has promised to those that love Him, all the weight of the glory of God is too pure to be touched by my hands. The joys of heaven are too pure to be given to me. The peace of heaven and the smile of the Father is too pure for one such as myself to enjoy. Oh, how wide is the canyon between what my heart desires and what my heart deserves. It is wider than the Grand Canyon, wider still than earth and sky, wider yet than heaven and hell. It is too high. I cannot. It is too holy. I am unclean, unclean, unclean. Who will deliver me from my unholiness? Who will bring me to heaven where alone my life is found? What holiness can avail? Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? Shall I come before Him with calves of a year old? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? Shall I uh, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams with ten thousands rivers of oil, shall the rivers of the blood of bulls and goats avail for me to enjoy heaven? No. Nothing will avail to bring me to heaven except a holiness from heaven. This now is why the author says in verse 5, Therefore. What a blessed transition. The sins of the old, uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were a reminder of sins every year. It was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Notice that this is a description of Christ coming into the world. The therefore is giving us the reason why Christ came into the world. The Old Testament sacrifices could not avail. Therefore, God sent His Son. In Exodus, the Lord came down upon the mountain. In the Gospel, the Lord came down from heaven. He is called the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. In John chapter 3, verse 13, the Lord says this about Himself, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, understand that your Jesus is not as men imagine Him to be. He's not as the artists depict Him. But see Him as He is, the Lord of Heaven, the Lord of Glory, the Holy One of Israel. O sinner, your Jesus is not whom men make Him out to be. 
a pawn for their political agendas and their theological schemes. No, no, O sinner. No, no, O child of God. Your Jesus is more glorious than you can imagine. He is. This is the one who came down into the world. Now what did he come to do? Keep reading in verse 5. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. He came to take on a body. You know, all the gods of the nations, all the pagan gods, they have bodies. But all the gods of the nations used their bodies for self-indulgence. Our God took on a body in order to sacrifice it. What, what a mystery is here. What, what kind of God would do this? The Lord of glory who enjoyed all things with no disturbance came down from heaven to take on a body like unto us. Who would do such a thing? Who would die for sinners? Who and why would such a one do this? Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love to us in that Christ died for us. In the incarnation of Christ, taking on a body in order to sacrifice it is the grand demonstration of his love. Continue in verse 5. He says that the sacrifices of the law were not pleasing to God. You see in verse 6, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. This is for several reasons, but firstly, it's because they were only meant to be temporary. The Old Testament sacrifices were never meant to continue. They were a catechism of holiness. But just like all catechisms, we are meant to graduate beyond the catechism. We're meant to learn it, and then we're meant to live it. Secondly, these sacrifices could not perfect the worshipers. Remember verse 1. These sacrifices, they could not make those who approach perfect. Now understand what's going on here. God was not pleased with the Old Testament sacrifices which he appointed because they could not accomplish his purpose. They could not achieve what he wanted to achieve in our salvation. They could not perfect us. Put another way, the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not qualify you for heaven. They could not. And so God was not pleased with them. Because he wants you qualified for heaven. And those are not going to cut it. So he sent his son who took on a body. Notice also Christ came to take a body. In order to sacrifice it, he also came to do the will of the Father. You see there in verse 7. Then he said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Brothers and sisters, it is the eternal purpose of the Father to save you. It is the eternal purpose of the Father to give you heaven. It is the eternal purpose of the Father to qualify you for heaven. 
And it is the eternal purpose of the Father to do all of this and more through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the will of the Father. Now, we need to be careful here. Notice in verse 8, he says, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. There's a distinction we need to keep in mind between the Scriptures and the will of God. In the Scripture, we learn what the will of God is. In the Savior, we see the will of God accomplished. In your salvation, we see the will of God realized. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough merely to know what God requires. It is not enough merely to know even from the Scriptures that you must be holy. It is not enough to confess that in Christ holiness has been accomplished. This was the mistake of the Jews. If you read Romans chapter 2, this is the basis of Paul's argument with the Jews. He tells the Jews, you think you are a guide to the blind because you know God's will having been instructed from the law. But he says, even though you are instructed in the law, you don't live out the law. For not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law are justified in the sight of God. And then Paul goes on further and says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. Meaning that the holiness God requires in the law must be realized in your life. It must become your holiness. You must be transformed. tremble to think that God will judge me for the amount of knowledge I have based upon the life that I live. And I tremble for the Reformed Church for the amount of knowledge that we have and the amount of holiness that we lack. I tremble because it is very easy for us, just like the Jews of the Old Testament and in the first century of the church, to think, we know the will of God, and to not live the will of God. The author continues, says in verse 10, by that will, the will of the Father, the eternal decree of God. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is the will of God which sanctifies us through the offering up of the body of Christ. 
The holiness that will avail to grant you the reward of heaven is not a holiness that comes from you, nor can be produced by you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God is holy and you are not, so try harder. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is holy and you are not. Therefore, God sent His Son to be your holiness. So how much holiness is enough? At what point are we holy enough? Have we arrived? Do you have no more to learn in your pursuit of holiness? Have you grown as holy as you can? Are the rest of your days and months and years just so much idle waiting for Christ to return? Our holiness is never going to be enough. In no amount of outward good looks can we be made holy. The only holiness that will avail is the holiness granted to you in the person and work of Christ. That is holiness. The holiness of heaven. Let me just say this if it's not clear. Holiness is judged by comparing ourselves to Jehovah not to one another. Holiness is determined by His standard and the reward that He has promised. And to all those that believe in Christ, as it says in verse 10, He makes them holy so that they can enjoy heaven. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. When the gospel requires of you holiness... It is not requiring you to produce more good works to earn holiness. The gospel in requiring holiness is requiring the one thing it has always required. Repent of your self-righteousness and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your righteousness, for your holiness, and for your glory. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the reward that you promised to us in the gospel. We give you thanks for the holiness of Christ, which qualifies us for the reward of the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in us saving faith, uniting us to Christ by the Spirit, that we might indeed be made holy in his sight that we might be qualified for our heavenly reward. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us to set our minds on things above and cause us to look for that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.